Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. We've talked about some of this before. It might be review for you. It might be uh, partially new for you. But I want to just dive into a little bit of teaching here on the three spheres of all of us as a human race, our spirit, our soul, and our body. These three components to humanity are essential in our understanding of actually what Paul is talking about. Because he's not just uh, forming eloquent sentences to confuse us. He's actually talking about something vitally important. And in the tail end of chapter two that we talked about last week, Paul is addressing one specific interplay. And that's the, the interplay of when we're led by our soul. Our soul is comprised of our mind, our will, and our emotions. The spirit in us is our intuition, communion, okay? Intuition, communion, and conscience. Those are the three components of our spirit, intuition, communion, conscience. Our soul is our mind, our will, and our emotions. And then we have our physical body, our five senses. And so Paul, under the surface, is illustrating something here. And at the tail end of chapter two, he's talking about being led by our soul instead of our spirit. I want to show you this. I was working on this illustration to somehow try and figure this out for you. To, to clarify this. And so what Paul was talking about at the end of chapter two is a life driven by our soul and our soul trying to impose itself on our spirit. That's what leads us to attempt piety and external religious practice, to, to value tradition over everything else. And so our soul, our mind and our will and our emotions, we elevate the pursuit of intellectual understanding. We think that somehow by, by elevating our mind, we're somehow going to inform our spirit of what should happen. And when we're driven by our soul, we, our soul begins to put pressure on the spirit and then it begins to put pressure on the body. And then that leads us to things like fasting where we're, we're denying ourselves in an unhealthy way where the soul is saying to the body, you have to beat yourself and you have to, you know, um, do Pilates nine days a week kind of thing. And that's where the soul is imposing what it believes is right on the body in this external fashion. This is what the early monastic monks did and thought that somehow by beating their bodies into submission, they were working to gain God's approval. And Paul is saying to the Colossians, look, when your life is driven by your soul, when it's driven by your mind, when it's driven by the enforcement of your will, when it's driven by your emotions, when you're going left and right and all over the place, emotionally driven, when your life is centered around these things, Bringing your body under submission to that and growing in that way is never going to happen. It's not going to last. 
How many fad diets have I done? I'm not going to ask you that. Have I done? I, w I remember when I was 18, I did this like stupid cabbage diet, right? Uh, yeah, some of you are nodding your heads like you did it too. That was like a late 90s diet where all you do is eat cabbage for like weeks on end. And then there's this one day where you have to eat like nine bananas and I hate bananas. I don't like bananas. And so often we go through these cycles where our soul, our mind and our will and our emotions are trying to affect change in our body, but it never lasts. And so often when we are wrestling in our faith, we believe, well, if I just buckle down and I just read, you know, through the whole Bible this year, or if I just practice these religious duties, and if I just do this, and if I just do that, if I gain better intellectual understanding of God, well, then that's going to help me. And Paul is saying, look, when you're led by those things, you experience death on both ends. And there's a confrontation that happens in these places. And in chapter 3, Paul moves on to the next interplay that's going on. He says in verse 1, since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. I just want you to notice a couple of things. You can circle them if you want. But he says, that we are called to seek the things of heaven. That word seek in the original language means literally to passionately or emotionally be driven, to passionately seek the purposes of God in your life, to use all of your energy, all of your emotion, all of your desire, all of that thing that's in you that drives you and look for Jesus. He also uses this phrase, set your minds. So he's joining these two important principles there. One, the setting, the, the use of your will, the, the intentional focus. Use your will. Use your will to pursue the things of God. And use your mind under submission to God to begin to reflect on who he is and what he's done to reflect on the things of heaven, the freedom that's found there, the joy that's found there, the peace that's found there. Paul said, the kingdom of heaven is righteousness, which in its most simple translation means justice, is justice, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, literally, you can live your life a different way. You don't have to be walking around carrying the weight of anxiety and fear and doubt and frustration and anger and all of these things, if you actually reflect on what is taking place in heaven, the character traits of heaven, it does a couple things. And I want to show you the next illustration. What happens is we begin to receive downloads 
from God. His character, his spirit begins to commune and interact with us. And when this happens, our conscience and intuition and communion come alive. And we begin to discern things and hear things and understand things. Our passions begin to change because we're driven by a new force. We're not driven by intellectual assent. We're not driven by enforcing our will and just trying our hardest. And we're not driven by our emotion in any given situation. And so what Paul is saying is, look, if you're spending your time if you're spending your emotional energy and your intellectual energy and the, the will of your life, if you're spending it in this communion relationship with God, what happens is our spirit then begins to take control of our mind and our will and our emotions. This is what Paul meant when he said that our minds need to come under the authority of Christ, that we need to take every thought captive and make it obedient to what he says, to who he says he is, and who we are in him. When this begins to happen, we've, we find emotional stability in our life. We're not buffeted and tossed with every wave of circumstance around us. Our emotions come under the authority of Jesus, and our will is surrendered to him. We're able to say, God, I, I'm not interested anymore in controlling the timelines and the situations of my life. I trust you and I surrender myself to you, God. I trust your determination of the future of my life because you love me and you're good and you're for me. Your plans aren't to harm me. So God, I'm going to bend and surrender my will to you. And when we begin to do that, our soul mind, will, and emotion come under his authority. And then when our soul comes under the authority of Christ, our body follows. And then our mind begins to tell our body the things and the thoughts of God over us. Our emotions begin to direct the body according to the purposes of God. We bring our body under the authority of Christ. When that begins to happen, the battleground shifts and we're no longer battling in here internally. We're no longer a wreck all the time. We're no longer living in patterns of guilt and condemnation and remorse. We're not living in that space. So our mental capacity isn't taken up with this cycle of always being sorry and God, I messed up again and I'm no good and I'm never gonna amount to anything and I'm never gonna get this thing right. Our mental capacity isn't consumed by those anymore. So our battleground shifts and our battleground begins to reflect this external extension of the kingdom of God. And this is where we see Jesus walking his whole life out his whole soul and body under the submission of his father's will. He said, I only speak what I hear him speaking and do what I see him doing. And that resulted in this life that Jesus lived where he lived like a spiritual lion, strong and courageous, but he carried himself like a lamb in his interactions with others. Jesus wasn't going around picking fights all the time. 
But this is what happens when your spirit, soul, and body are under the control of God. You begin to experience confrontation with the kingdom of darkness around you. You begin to see the manifestation of this collision of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Not because you have this weird desire for it, but because when you are fully yielded to God, when you're fully under his control, the kingdom of God flows out of you And that kingdom of God brings light to darkness and it brings peace to distress and it brings hope to hopelessness and it brings healing to sickness and infirmity. That kingdom of God that's flowing out of you brings salvation and grace and life where there's death. Everywhere that Jesus walked and went, this confrontation was happening and he was carrying everything that was being downloaded from the Father into every situation. This is how Paul is challenging that Colossian church and challenging us to live. He moves on and says in verse five, so put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. I was thinking about this this week. That original word for Paul for put to death is literally kill or destroy the power of. Paul's instruction, Paul's instruction to the Colossians, let's just put that last one up there quick for one sec. His instruction is not to continue to put to death everything in here His instruction is to bring the battle out here. And before it makes it to you, put it to death. Before it gets on your doorstep, use the authority that Christ has given you. Use that sword of the spirit he's given you and cut it out. Every temptation, every sin, everything you've believed that is opposed to God and his truth, every mindset that isn't right according to the purposes of God, before it gets to that middle section, cut it out and put it to death. The great news for us today is because of what Jesus did on the cross, we have the authority to do it. He's given us his word, which is like a sword thrust into the enemy. When I was reflecting on this idea that these things are not always so apparent to us, these patterns of sin that... that That word for lurking in the darkness literally means to be hidden out of sight. And so often we have this idea that sin is this cute pet. It might be a monster, but it's a cute monster. It's like a Monsters, Inc. monster, right? It's like the monster in the closet that might be scary at first, but he's actually pretty cuddly and cute. And we have this idea of sin like, oh, you know, it's not so bad. It's not so bad, it's actually kind of cute. 
And, and, and besides, it's really small and I'm really big and I can, I can control it. But what Paul is saying here is when sin lurks under the surface, at just the right moment when you're weak, because the devil never plays by the rules. He's underhanded and he's dirty and he's looking to kill and steal and destroy. So you're, you're approaching him like he's some person of honor and he's not. When you're weakest, when you're most vulnerable, that cute little cuddly monster that, that you think you have in your closet stands up and becomes a ferocious, destroying force in your life. And Paul is saying, look, before he has a chance to do that, before he has a chance, you've got to kill him. And we're not talking about salvation issues here. The Bible's clear that we're saved by grace. We're not saved based on how many sins we confess every day. We're saved by the blood of Jesus, by grace through faith. This is about active life. This is actually about walking in the full potential that God has called you to. This reminded me of another story, if you want to turn with me. In Genesis 22. Genesis 22, we have the story of this man who is this a towering figure of faith. And we talked about Abraham a little bit a few weeks ago and how Abraham, even as strong as he was, went through periods of doubt and where he took control back from God because he was afraid of what would happen. In chapter 22, it says, sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much. Go into the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set the wood... Sorry, hold on. And set for the, out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little further. We will worship there. Then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulder while he himself carried the fire and the knife. I don't know if you've ever stopped there, but for so long I've read that verse and went, God, I don't know what in the world that means or why you're pointing it out. And this week, the Holy Spirit just reminded me of that verse. And I believe it has great application for what Paul is talking about. 
You see, there were things that were still lurking under the surface in Abraham's life. There were issues of trust and faith in God that were lurking far below the surface. And God needed to test him to see if he was willing to kill those things that were lurking under the surface in his life. And when the Bible says that Abraham carried the knife and the fire, I believe what is being spoken there is that God gave Abraham the tools to kill that stuff in his life. He said, here are your tools, Abraham. Here's the fire and the knife. I'm not going to do this for you. You're going to do it. You're going to kill that stuff that's lurking below the surface in your life. You're going to kill that lack of faith and trust in me. You're going to kill anything that opposes my presence in you. And so God gives him the knife and the fire and says, Abraham, this is your job to do. This is your part of the journey. This is what I'm calling you to. And in the same way, he's giving you and I the knife and the fire. And he's saying, look, I've paid the ultimate price for you to live in freedom. But this garbage that's coming at you, you've got to kill it before it takes you out. The last illustration I want to show you, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. The last illustration is exactly what happens when we don't take the knife and the fire into our own hands. Again, I'm not talking about salvation issues here. I'm talking about believers saved by grace through faith who open wide the front door of their lives, their five senses, what you see, what you watch, what you hear, what you say out of your mouth what you believe with your mind. All of these things, these senses, when they're yielded to enemy forces in your life, he walks right in, right in to the middle of it. When you don't take the knife and the fire to the things that are coming against you, you're making agreements with those principalities and those demonic forces and saying, yeah, Jesus paid for my life with my, his blood. He paid for it. He bought the property and the land that I'm living on, but you can come in. I don't mind if you squat in the lawn on the front. Some of you I might even let in the front door. I own the house. Jesus paid for it with his blood, but I'm okay. And we have this weird idea this dysfunctional idea that somehow we can just aimlessly go through life inviting all kinds of garbage into our bodies and into our eyes and our minds and somehow think that it's just fine. And Paul is saying, he's just, he's imploring with them. You have to kill this stuff before it takes you down. See, what happens when we're oriented this way is God says, because of my holiness and my set-apartness, I'm not, 
I am not going to contend with this sin in your life. And we may be saved by the grace of Jesus, but we cut off communion with the living God. We cut relationship off. We grieve the Holy Spirit. We quench him. And he says, look, you've opened that door and that door and this door, but there's a door that will not be opened. And that's the door to my presence and my life in a renewing and redeeming and powerful way. And we wonder why we have no strength and power to live the kind of life that God has called us to. And God says, you have no strength and power because you've opened the front door. The greatest news in all the world is because of what Jesus did on the cross. Because we are his sons and daughters, he has given us his authority. His authority to turn to those squatters and say, get off my property. I'm taking the fire and the knife and you're leaving. He's given us the authority but there's two components to our spiritual life in this way. There's authority and power. And we lack power because we don't exercise the authority. And what God is saying is, look, if you're gonna do this, it's your choice, that's fine. But you have to understand the consequence is that your heart gets hard and your conscience gets seared and your discernment goes out the window and your ability to hear my life-giving voice becomes diminished. Not because I don't wanna to speak to you and lead you, but because I don't contend with sin. I won't tolerate it. So I'll leave you to figure out what you wanna figure out. I want to read you a story to illustrate this. This is from the Second World War. General Jonathan Wainwright was the only American general taken prisoner by the Japanese during World War II. His captors held him captive in a POW camp in remote Mongolia where he grew progressively weak and feeble. He never compromised his honor, however, and he conducted himself with dignity while hoping the allies would win the war. Every time the Japanese commandant gave him an order, he had to obey. He was a prisoner of war waiting for his commander in chief to liberate him. When President Roosevelt sent General Douglas MacArthur to Australia to organize the counteroffensive that eventually defeated Japan, MacArthur left Wainwright in charge of the besieged Philippines. MacArthur instructed him not to surrender, but the carnage caused by the Japanese was so atrocious that Wainwright reluctantly capitulated, leaving him a deep sense of shame. When the troops under MacArthur defeated Japan, a cablegram went out to all Japanese POW camps instructing the commandants to surrender to the highest ranking allied officers. Everybody 
complied except for the commandant in whose camp Wainwright was held captive. Because the general did not know the truth that Japan had been defeated, he continued to behave like a POW. Every order from his captors lacked legitimacy, but not knowing that, he obeyed them. With no news about his former second-in-command, MacArthur dispatched a senior official to assess the situation. The plane landed near the POW camp where the American emissary walked up to the fence. When Wainwright approached, he saluted and announced, General, Japan has been defeated. Wainwright returned the salute, then feebly leaning on his cane, he slowly walked to the, to the commandant's office, opened the door, and without even raising his voice, he uttered the liberating truth. My commander-in-chief has defeated your commander-in-chief. I am in charge now. And in the same way, through what Jesus did on the cross, we're able to approach every opposing force in our life and say, my commander-in-chief has defeated your commander-in-chief. I am in charge now. The Bible says that we are no longer slaves to sin, but children of the Most High. It says that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in us, who is sent from God. We're not our own. Our freedom was bought. And yet we choose we choose to live in captivity to sin and garbage in our life. And the invitation of Jesus is so simple. Would you, would you allow me to lead you out of captivity and into life? God is so good. He is so faithful and he's so kind. He's calling you today to stand up, to stand up and declare to all the enemy forces around you, my commander in chief has defeated yours. I am not under your rule or your authority. I am not at your beck and call. I don't have to submit to you. I have a king who has gained the victory of my life and my power and authority on the cross. The question is, do you want it? Do you want it? Or are you content to hobble around in that POW camp? taking orders from people who despise you and hate you, taking orders from spiritual forces and principalities that only want your death and destruction. Is that what you want? Jesus is just asking the question, what do you want? So often we think of spiritual warfare as this 
weird, complicated thing, and it's not. It's not. He's given you the ability to approach his throne. If you want to understand how I pray every morning, you can just go on our website. There's a link, mp.church slash morning prayer, and it will show you every morning I stand up in the presence of my commander in chief and I say, I'm here. I'm here in front of you. I'm at your beck and call. My life is your life. My will and my emotions are yours. My body is yours. So what do you want me to do today? Every day, I ask the Holy Spirit to reveal anything in me that has grieved him or quenched him. I do this every morning. I literally pray, Holy Spirit, reveal to me anything that I've done that has quenched you or grieved you. Anything that has broken relationship there at the top. Anything at all I want to know so that I can live in your power and your authority. And after I take a few minutes of just processing what I hear him saying, I get my sword out that he's given me and I address specifically the things he's putting on my heart. I address the spirit of pride and I take my sword out and I renounce the influence and effects of pride on my life. And as I take the sword out, my thrust is to say it's written. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It is written, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. And I turn to the next opposing force and I look at self-righteousness and I renounce the spirit of self-righteousness over my life and I use my sword and I say, it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. My righteousness is like filthy rags. And I address lust in my life. If there's anything going on related to lust or anything like that, I renounce those things that are going on under the surface that are lurking below. And I take my sword out and I kill it. And then every morning I go back into the presence of my commander in chief and say, what's my assignment today? What do I need to kill in my life today that is holding me back from the fullness that you have for me? And this invitation for you is to do the same. It's not hooky kooky rocket science. It's applying the word of God to live in victory and power. Why don't you stand with me? Paul said, we are no longer slaves to sin. And he goes through this list in Colossians. He says, put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desire. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. The writer of Hebrews said, it's a fearful thing to find yourselves in the hands of God. 
Paul goes on to say, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malice, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you've stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters. And he lives in you. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.